Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all the glory. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the spirit that allows us to be diligent to interpret your words, Lord. And we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We thank you that you go before us, that you establish our words in you, Lord, that we would glorify only you, and that we would be edified through all these things. We give you all the glory again in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So this morning we began with a worship song, Ancient Words. And to give us a brief exhortation this morning in regards to ancient words, I would challenge us. Are the ancient words that we're listening to God's word or man's? You see, if the ancient words that we're listening to and we're building our foundation upon are not God's word, they are either wrong or revealed to be half-truths. It is only God's word that is the true ancient words that can impart anything to us. We've been going through this series here talking about things Christians say. And the goal is to highlight what Christians say and to see if it's consistent in regards to the scriptures. What we've done for the past couple weeks is established that the knowledge of God is given to the people of God for their edification and for them to proclaim that message to the world so that the world would be healed by way of the knowledge of God. Again, we see this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, where it says that it, ha- it has been given to the church to make known the manifold wisdom of God. We see quite a few details there. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we read about the knowledge of God. Again, you can go back and listen to that sermon. Last week, we talked about the Bible, how Christians speak in regards to the Bible. And we were able to clarify that the Bible has been given, needs to be searched, studied, and proved in order to further display the knowledge of God to God's people. That the Bible itself says that it must be studied out. Study to show yourself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth. The man who does so need not be ashamed. One of the verses that we're using to speak of this sermon series is the Apostle Paul's instruction to his spiritual son, Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 specifically, we read the Apostle Paul admonishing his spiritual son that he is to guard his life and to guard his teachings. Because in doing so, he will save both himself and those who hear him. And as Christians who desire to do the same, it is an exhortation, an admonishment, if you will, that we would guard our teachings and the things we say. Yesterday, I had messaged Pastor Steve and asked him, what does he think about the word of God and Christians? And I love what he had to say. He said that, When we speak about the word of God coming from the Christian community, we're saying that we have the authority to speak on behalf of God. I have intentionally launched this sermon series talking through the Bible, the knowledge of God, and the word of God because this will be a resource and a reminder as we move into talking about the various different topics that we will be talking about in this series. Again, I encourage you to think about all the things that Christians say in regards to all the different topics. Are we speaking the things we're called to say, the true knowledge of God, guarding our teachings and guarding our lives? In Scripture, and even more in contemporary times, the Word of God is intended to produce worship. 
This means that if the Word of God is handled like a hot dish recipe or a repair manual, it is mishandled. The people will suffer. The people do suffer. The truth of God begs to be handled with exaltation, to be handled worthily. And our hearts yearn for this and need it. Something in us starts to die when the precious and infinitely valuable realities are handled without feelings and words of wonder and exaltation. That is, a church starts to die without a true proclamation of the word of God. And then the world, unfortunately, suffers because the church of God is not walking worthy of their calling. But of course, this assumes something massive. To treasure the truth, to love the truth, and to be impassioned about the truth, and to exult in the truth, we must know the truth. So, in talking about the Word of God this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to highlight things Christians have said about the Word of God, things the world says about the Word of God, and then what the Scriptures say about the Word of God. And then we will do what we would call a consistency examination, and I'll make some points that are necessary. So let's look first. What are some things that Christians say about the Word of God? I've heard that the Bible is the Word of God from the mouths of Christians. I've heard Jesus is the Word of God. I've heard the contrast that Jesus is the Word of God, not the Bible. I've heard Christians say, I follow Jesus, not the Bible, because he is the living Word. I've heard Christians speak of the living, quickening, living Word of God. And then, of course, I've heard Christians say things such as God's Word for us, I have a word for you. This is the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord has said. Let it be according to his word. And then you get, of course, into the cliches. Cleanliness is next to godliness. God will not give you any more than you can bear. And all sorts of things. Love the sinner, hate the sin. God helps those who help themselves. And I cannot help but think, Are these the ancient words of God that are imparting to us, or are these the ancient words of man that are further confusing us? So let's consider what the world has said about Christianity, or about the word of God. The world seems to be stuck in this conundrum, trying to figure out whether or not the word of God or the word of man is important and valuable. The world seems to be stuck trying to figure out ancient concerns as well as modern concerns. It's not new that we would doubt that what we hear about God is false or true. That's not a new thing for us to begin to wonder, is this true? This has been happening from the beginning of time when men began to speak on behalf of God. So what's important for us is that whatever we're talking about to be the word of God we must be able to properly explain it. So what I want to start with is the Bible as the Word of God. What is the Bible? Do we know as the Christian community how to defend the Word of God, what we're calling the Bible, the historicity of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, the inerrancy without error of the Bible? Unfortunately, more often than not, most Christians don't even know what the Bible is. So as I mentioned last week, I'll further explain. The Bible is 66 different books written over 1,600 years, about 40 different authors, and it's divided into 39 books which categorize the Old Testament and 27 books which detail the New Testament. 
These different authors were from every walk of life. Moses was a highly educated political leader. Peter was a fisherman. David was a king. Matthew worked for the, what we would contemporarily know as the IRS. Ruth was a peasant. Esther, a queen. These people lived on different continents from Africa to Europe. Written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And the message was intended to address all the nations of the earth. Unlike, all, unlike other sacred scriptures, the Bible is not about some local deity of one people group. God claims to be addressing all nations. And again, of course, you see the beautiful harmony, the unity of the scriptures that are written through these 66 books, which compose what I often refer to as the narrative, the biblical narrative. So once we begin to understand how the the Bible has this unity to it, this organic unity, if you will, then we can begin to look into the prophecies and argue for the reliability of the word of God. So not only has God given us a story and detailed a beautiful picture of how he intends to covenant among his people and make his presence known on earth. Again, something all the other false gods did, but they just did not make their message as clear, reliable, and true as ours is. So now how do we go about detailing truth? One of the things I love about the Bible is the prophecies of the Bible. Some prophecies that we can agree upon, even with the world, would be the destruction of the city of Tyre, which was predicted in detail by Ezekiel in about 600 B.C., and then sure enough, about 270 years later, Alexander the Great completely completely did that destruction, completely destroyed the city of Tyre. Another beautiful prophecy that we see is written in Daniel chapters 2 and 7, where it talks about the kingdoms that would come upon the earth. And this is written in about 539 B.C. And he talks about the four different kingdoms that would successively interact with God's chosen people, Israel, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. All four of those kingdoms have risen and fallen in the last couple centuries, exactly as Daniel had predicted going back to 535 B.C. Beautiful. And that's just two mentions of the prophecies that the scriptures, the word of God, speaks of. When it comes to inspiration, as I mentioned last week, we do not argue with the world. We know that the Bible is the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16-17 through 17 tells us that all scripture is profitable by, of God. Jesus himself said that scriptures testify of me. I don't argue with people about the inspiration that... The prophets, that the apostles of Jesus, that they spoke by way of a God-breathed truth. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it tells us that. And I don't argue with the world about that. Because that's something God needs to do. God needs to touch the minds and the hearts of a person before they will begin to truly decide to lead their understanding over to the truth. Because again, we love carnality. We love wickedness. We love leaning upon our own understanding rather than following God into his paths of truth. I love what Martin Luther had said, one of the greatest preachers of all times, again, a reformer who speaks to us from the 15th century, and he explained the need for the Bible, the 66 books being written in a word. Why don't we have prophets coming to us any longer telling us the truth of God? This is what he said. Because heresies threatened the living apostolic message, it had to be recorded in a book to protect it from falsification. Preaching reverses this process of conservation again, allowing the scriptures of the past become the good tidings of the past, of the present. The gospel has been committed to lifeless paper. Fresh words, preaching, can transform it into glad tidings again. So yes, we know that the 66 books have been gathered in history by the Catholic Church. 
And all these different arguments people bring up against the Bible. You know, attacks against the Bible are not new. I love one of my favorites that I mentioned uh, in regards to the different enemies that have come up against the Bible. You know, you could mention the uh, Diocletian Edict. You could talk about many different things that happened prior to AD 300. However, one of my favorites is Voltaire. Voltaire, the French philosopher and skeptic, predicted in the 18th century that the Bible and Christianity would soon be obsolete. Sure enough, in 1828, 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society began using his press in his house to publish Bibles. What a way for the word of man to be wrong. Make sure you're listening to the ancient words of God, not the ancient words of man. I'll tell you another reason why that's such a big deal. God will reward you in keeping with your idolatry. We see this with the story of Saul and the witch. You remember the story, Saul? He desires to hear from a prophet because he wants to know what to do with his kingdom and what God is saying in his time. So he decides that instead of trusting in the the word of God that has been coming to him through the prophets that God has been sending from his people, Israel, he decides he's going to go to a witch, the witch of Endor. And he goes to the witch and he asks her if she could summon the spirit of Samuel from the grave. And sure enough, as you read that story, the spirit is summoned and... The Spirit says nothing to, Sam, to, Paul that he, uh, to Saul that he did not know. Samuel raises and he says, Saul, why did you bother me? Why have you come here and done this? And leaves. God will reward you in keeping with your idolatry. In Ezekiel chapter four, verse, uh, 14, verse 4, we see that directly. That is why it is the job of a minister. A minister is somebody that is sent to serve and help. The role of a minister, according to Titus chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, is to teach the saints in sound doctrine. Again, what the Apostle Paul admonished Timothy. Sound doctrine. Guard your words. To encourage the saints in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who oppose it. We need to be careful in handling the word of God. Because the word of God did not only speak to the ancients, it speaks to us. It imparts wisdom to us. So what do the scriptures say about the word of God? Well, there's a couple different mentions that I want to make a point of. We see in Genesis chapter 37, verse 14, where just asking about the word of another person, like, you know, the message that that person has to say to you, you would say, bring me the word of. I might say, bring me the word of Pastor Steve. That's one way the word is used. The word of the Lord came to, and usually speaking in regards to God's Old Testament prophets. Again, we know God gave his oracles to Israel. So the prophets that you would have listened to if you lived in that time prior to Jesus would be the prophets of Israel. So the word of the Lord came to his prophets. And then, of course, we see that you, would, you could be tested by his word. We see the specific mention of this in Psalm chapter 105, verse 19, in regards to Joseph. If you remember, Joseph was given a dream that his brothers and his father and his mother would bow before him. And then when he told them that dream, this created such a pride and a jealousy within his brothers that they sold him into slavery in Egypt. Talk about the word of the Lord testing you. Because now Joseph is in Egypt. Again, he was in bondage at first as a slave and then eventually rose to prominence there with the Pharaoh. And sure enough, in years to come, his father and his brothers would come before him and bow before him asking for food. But he was tested by that word just as much as Abram was tested to leave his land and go to another land, trusting that God would fulfill his promise. Just as much as Sarah being barren 
needed to trust that the Lord would give her children. You could be tested by God's word. Consider yourself blessed, by the way, if you're tested by God's word. In the book of Acts, we read about the word of the Lord being preached. We read about the word of the Lord increasing. We read about the word of the Lord being imprisoned but not being able to be imprisoned. Persecuted but free. Believed in but yet corrupted. The Bible says a lot about the word of God. One of the things I like to do in trying to understand a certain topic, when you come to understand that a certain topic is expounded upon so much in the Bible, the best way to go about understanding that topic would be by the law of first mention. Within Bible study classes, within, you know, when I was in seminary, you would learn about hermeneutics, Bible interpretation. The law of first mention is one of the ways that you could properly interpret the Bible. If you want to know about a certain topic, find the first place that it's mentioned in the Bible and begin to research. So the law of first mention in regards to the word of God takes us to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. This is where the word of the Lord came to Abram. Specifically, it says here, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great. Let's talk about that. What does it mean for the word of God to be a shield to you and that your reward would be great? Some text that this should take us to and remind us of would be Psalm chapter 18, verse 30. There in Psalm 18, verse 30, we read, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. Imagine having a shield that was not faithful. A shield that could not, that, you know, again, to use that text, a shield that was not tried. A shield that you could not trust and that is not blameless. Again, that's what we see many times throughout the Old Testament. The prophets of Baal specifically. Their shield, if they were listening to the word of Baal, their shield was not sure. Their shield was not tried. Their shield was not something I would want holding, hold, to be holding up in battle. I'd rather hold up the words of the true God rather than the prophets of Baal, which, again, were merely the words of man. What does it mean for the word of God to reward you? Here in the book of Proverbs, I imagine Solomon would be a man to learn about rewards from. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 through 6, it says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be a liar. You see, the first reward, or the, namely the main reward we get from the word of God, is that it's true. Not only is it a sure shield that will keep us safe in time of battle, but this word is true. This is not man's wisdom. I'm going to be sending out a host of different verses that mention the word of the Lord in Scripture. And how the word of the Lord spoke throughout the generations. What I want to do now is point out some consistency in regards to the word of the Lord. Let's talk about what Christians have said. Because now that I've made my point that the word of God has many different mentions in Scripture, the word of God is namely talking about the message of someone to someone else. Let's see if we're being consistent in what we're saying about the word of God. Again, we want to make sure that as Christians, we're preaching the same word of God that came to Abram. The word of the Lord that was sure, tried, and that would be a shield that you would want to hold up in the time of trial and battle. 
I don't know anybody that would want to hold up what they believe to be a lie in the time of trial or battle or something that was blameless and there could be a fault. That's like holding a shield with a hole in it. And unfortunately, when we find ourselves saying things that are not the word of God, when we're talking about the word of God, we're holding up a shield that has a hole in it. We're teaching the traditions and thoughts of man. So the first thing I want to highlight is that cliches cannot transcend culture. The word of God always comes and gives clarity. Again, if you're holding up a shield, the shield, the word, is sure, it is tried. It's something we're not supposed to add to or take from. Therefore, cliches that do not always transcend and would sometimes seemingly add to the word because they could be misapplied to a certain circumstance, they need to be removed from our vocabulary as Christians. The heaven and hell afterlife talk, we've already mentioned numerous times here in our church how People, how so much harm has been done by Christians misapplying Bible verses, misapplying cliches, and not being compassionate, authentic people in our response to the discussion of the afterlife and heaven and hell. So let's be a people that do that. Let's be a people who could truly bring forth the word of God that is peaceable, tried, and true when we're talking about things of the afterlife. Love the sinner and hate the sin. I'll tell you, while I understand what we're trying to say there, The person you're speaking to might not. And when you call somebody a sinner, what that seems to be is you're making yourself to be the righteous. So when you say love the sinner and hate the sin, what you're saying is I'm so righteous that I'm called to love the sinner but hate the sin. Let's remove that from our vocabulary. I will admit this. In Jude chapter 22, uh, Jude verses 22 through 23, I like what Jude has to say in response to this situation. Rather than saying cliches. Let's listen to what the scriptures have to say. 22 through 23, we read. Well, actually, I'm going to start at yeah, 22 through 23, sorry. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. You see, instead of saying hate the sinner, love the sinner and hate the sin, why don't we have mercy on those that are lost and doubting? Why don't we have mercy on those who need a little bit more truth, that are stuck in sin and need to be snatched from thinking carnally? That seems to be the wisdom of God. God helps those who help themselves. Well, sure, in some, some circumstances. However, can a dead man raise himself? Therefore, as a Christian church that's gathered praising God for the salvation we now have, I don't know that it would be fitting for us to say God helps those who help themselves because we believe we were dead in sin. And as a church that adheres to the understanding of Calvinism, we do not believe that we took a part in that work. Something completely outside of us. So no, that can be misapplied and misunderstood. God doesn't give us any more than we can bear. I want to take you to two verses in that regard. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I have to thank Vicki for this verse. She, uh, she brought it up to me. You know, again, Vicki always being faithful with a little bit of a challenge. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13... It says this, the Apostle Paul talking to the church of Corinth, he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but as such as is common to man. And God, who is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation, will provide the way for you to escape, so that you will be able to endure it. However, a couple years later, the Apostle Paul writes a second letter to the same church. And listen to what he says here in chapter 1, verse 8. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, we read, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, or affliction of which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So, you see, I don't know that saying God doesn't give us any more than we could bear is a right saying. Because again, it does seem like that from the first verse. However, at the second verse, it seems to imply that God will give you more than you can bear, but he'll, he does that so that you will rely upon him. That you will receive his wisdom, that he can stretch you so that you will persevere through all things. So I don't know that that's, that cliche works very well. When God closes one door, he'll open another I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. These things are so confusing. And the word of God is not intended to be confusing. Let's move away from that. Amen? Let's speak the scriptures. Let's guard our teachings and guard our lives so that we manifest the word of God that is in line with the scriptures, that is as beautiful as the narrative that has been outlined for us. It is in this way that I believe that we create the organic unity between the word of God being the Bible and the word of God being Jesus. Because whatever is in this book, the beautiful narrative that we find in these 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, they point to Jesus, who is the fulfillment of everything pure, true, and perfect. Just as beautiful as the narrative is that that outlines the pages of this book, all of that points to Jesus. Jesus said, the scriptures testify of me. The term translated word in the Greek is logos, which basically means the expression of a thought. Logos can be thought of as the total message of God to man. Acts chapter 11, verse 1, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. Jesus embodied the total message, and that is why he is called the logos or the word of God in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19, as well as chapter 2, verse 9. Logos is also used many times in regards to the Bible, the written word of God, John 17, 17. 1 Timothy 4.15, sorry, Colossians 1.25. So the answer to our question is that the word is the writings of the Old Testament and the writings of the New Testament, but they point to Jesus. Amen? Who, they, they manifest Jesus. They clarify who Jesus is and what he, his will is for his people, to be among his people. So in conclusion, in speaking about the word, we establish two things. As a Christian community, we believe that truth as a category does exist. It's the word of God. Two parts, word of God, word of man. Word of man being lies, word of God being the truth. And this is important because we speak as men sent from God, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Our words need to be trusted as Christians if we are the embodiment of God's truth and God's presence here on earth. I cannot begin to account the numerous times that I've had to listen and to apologize for the harmful and just flat-out wrong things Christians have said. So I'll tell you what, next time you find yourself in a controversy, whether Jesus is the Word of God, the Bible is the Word of God, relax, both. And let's identify that cliches are harmful because they do not always transcend the culture As is commonly noted in our various studies, God speaks to people in the way that they can understand. And if we are the embodiment of the word of God today, we need to speak to a people 
in a way that is clarifying, true, blameless, a shield, and in a way that they can understand. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, I want to share with us in closing this morning, I want to share with us a couple, couple Proverbs. Again, Solomon being one of the wisest men who ever lived, I believe he would have something to say to us about the word of God. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25, It says, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. In our proclaiming of the gospel, in our proclaiming of the word of God, we need to be sure that we're not preaching things that are making people anxious. Because our job is to make people glad. A good word makes it glad. That's what we're called to do. In Proverbs chapter 13, the next chapter over, verses 12 through 17, we read, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, to turn aside from the snares of death. Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. A wicked messenger falls into adversity, but a faithful envoy brings healing. We, the church, are called to be that faithful envoy that will bring forth the word of God, the word of wisdom, that people would not have a heart, a sick heart, but that they would know that their desire has been fulfilled and that they can eat of the tree of life. There's no coincidence that when you get to the end of the Bible, it says that the leaves of the tree will be used for the healing of the nations because it's a desire fulfilled. How do we worship God? What is the word of God? Should we trust in the words of man or in the words of God? Good understanding, right here in verse 15, good understanding produces favor. But the way of the treacherous is hard. And then our last verse is Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11. It says, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. As Christians, we're called to give the right information. The right information usually requires being given in the right time and in the right context. That's our job. To give the word of God, the truth of God, the shield of God to people in the right circumstances that would make them glad and not anxious, that would bring healing rather than treacherous acts and hard labor, make people feel weighed down. So our grow and go this week is going to be to think through these things. Think through how you're making known the word of God. Talk through some, to some people about the word of God. Feel convicted in your heart that you want to know, absorb, worship, and exalt God by worshiping him in, him in spirit and in truth. That is the word of God. Do that this week. Think of somebody this morning as you, as, as you prepare to leave here that you might want to prepare uh, share this message with, about the word of God with. We're going to move into our Lord's Supper celebration where we're going to talk further about that word of God, which was the bread of life 
and gave up his blood for us in giving the new covenant. Thank you.